Genetic diversity is arguably the stuff of life. It's how beings large and small have evolved to live and even thrive in every niche environment on Earth. And it's how life has picked up and kept moving after every extinction event in our planet's history. It's tempting to think of evolution as an historical phenomenon surrounding dinosaurs, Neanderthals, and the like, but no. Genes are diversifying even now, and as the planet changes more and more over the next decades and centuries, who knows what's coming next? Cambridge, Massachusetts, I'm Moira Russia. And from Montreal, Quebec, I'm Jesse Corbet. With me in studio today is Amy Gillespie. Hi, Amy. Hi, Oran. Hi, uh, Amy is a graduate student at MIT in Earth Science, and she's a great friend of mine. And what you may not know is that she's part of the team behind the scenes. She's been helping us editing the podcast, and she's helping us promote it and everything. And she has the honor of being our first guest on the show, so welcome. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. So today on the program, we'll be talking about a subject suggested by Peter Feldstein from Calgary, which is genetic diversification and how speciation interfaces with the environment. Yes, and Peter's suggestion uh, specifically was that of Lake Victoria in Africa and how cichlids have developed along with the lake. So I looked it up. I, uh, I think that Lake Victoria's got kind of an interesting history. It's pretty young. It's a relatively young lake. It's only about 400,000 years old. Uh, it formed as the East African Rift moved around. In this area, the African tectonic plate is sort of separating into two plates. Um, okay, this is kind of embarrassing. Um, I actually thought until now that Lake Victoria was in Canada. <laughs> um, no. I don't know if I should admit that. Your worldview is so Canadian-centric. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I guess. Or it, it's in Africa. Um, so there's a lot of action going on. And... Uh, Part of that action is it developed many lakes. Like, if you look at a map, you can see the line of where things are splitting because all these long lakes have developed. And Lake Victoria is sort of smack in the middle of all this. And apparently how Victoria formed specifically was during all the action, like, rock upheavals started damming westward-flowing rivers. Um, that's not sort of the end of the story. As time went on, Lake Victoria has actually dried up about three times. They think it's mostly due to ice ages. You know, when there's an ice age the weather dries up. And Lake Victoria is pretty much precipitation dependent. So if the precipitation dries up, so does the lake. Yeah, it makes sense. Like if you've got all the rivers being dammed down, right? Of course, the only way water will come in is if it rains in. Yeah, because there's, there's definitely not enough river action to, to fill the lake. So the last time this happened was uh, about 17,300 years ago. I mean, whenever you put a sp too specific a year date on something, you're automatically a liar but around 17,300. Um, and then it started to bounce back and refill about 15,000 years ago. Uh, what I read was 14,800, but elsewhere it says about 50, and so, you know. But what this means in terms of cichlids is that every time the lake dries up, you have, obviously, you have an extinction of all the fish, right? So all these various cichlids that exist in the lake as it is, and there are many, many different species. There's about 15 major cichlid guilds, which is, I guess, general branches. Um, so all all these 15 families of cichlids come from the same ancestor that comes from 15... They think it's all from one, I mean, maybe two, but most of what I read is, like, it's all coming from one 
you know, one surviving species. Like, so, Orad, you just pulled up a picture of a cichlid. It kind of looks like Nemo, but instead of being orange and black, it's like blue and black. So imagine like a cute little fish, striped, really colorful. Yeah, blue Nemo, that's actually not a bad Well, Well, they, they don't really all look like that. I mean, as part of this, <laughs> um, they bounce back and sort of develop to suit all the niches in the lake. So yeah, they come in every single color. Well, they come in all kinds of different colors. Some of them are bottom feeders. Some some of them scrape rocks for food. Others like live out in the open. They've filled every niche possible in the lake. So what it sounds like you're saying is they all have a common ancestor, and yet they've diversified over the past fifteen thousand years to be all different colors, live in different environments in They're the different lake. Different shapes, you know. They have... So what specifies that they're cichlids then? Why aren't well, they, like, are they different species of fish or are they all a species of cichlid? One thing is that a lot of them are sort of hybridizing um, because we had another population crash very recently. Like in the 1960s, Nile perch were introduced and what that did was it created a whole new fishery, right? Uh, if, if you're a fisherman on Lake Victoria and you have the choice of going for little bony cichlids or these big two meter long perch, what are you going to choose, Right. So what happened then was all these little shanty towns developed and like, you know, industrialization. Whenever you have deforestation and, and a lot of people next to a lake, what do you have? You have runoff. And what does runoff do? I mean, look at Quebec. It creates algae blooms that start choking the lakes. So you, you have... Yeah, they, they kill off all the sunlight, they, they, for example. They right? just, you know, it causes all kinds of havoc. Plus... Yeah, also some of them also have, they release some kind of toxins into the water. Yeah, it's, it's just bad, bad news. So that, plus these huge perch that were just, you know, popping fish into their mouths, you had a population crash by the 80s, where, like, before that, say a fisherman pulled pulled in uh, his net and, like, 80% of it was cichlids. It gradually got to, by the time the 80s, you're talking, like, 1%, right? Mm-hmm. But for some reason now, everything is really, really bouncing back so that today there's, there's like, many, many different kinds of cichlids again. A lot of the original species are gone. But what's happening is they think because these algae blooms create such murky water, females who are used to seeing males and mating because of that are not seeing the same colors and stuff. So you have all kinds of species of fish intermingling again oh. as well as so that's a good trick actually if we could blind all the ladies then we don't have to dress wrong it would work for you and me that's for sure <laughs> i think so yeah well you and i are actually pretty lucky already i guess but uh it took us a while to get here maybe, yeah right? um but uh, look the upshot of this is like when it comes to jeans i don't know a base for a pair of levi's right it's the the greater story that that i find interesting i found this this piece from the july 2010 issue of nature called dream pond revisited mm-hmm. and look at you reading nature going right yeah to the source. You know, right right to the source and there's a quote here by ole seehausen who is a scientist working on the cichlids he says that um it says here uh around 15 major cichlid guilds each with many sub-specializations have been identified in lake victoria and he says it is by far the fastest large-scale adaptive radiation known Obviously, we're talking about vertebrates. But so what I find very interesting is, I mean, it's so fast. You know what I'm saying? Like, the idea that, that evolution happens slow doesn't seem to work here, you know? Yeah, I mean, it takes a long time, right? Because, you know, humans have been homo sapiens for something like 100,000 years, like 50 to 200,000, depending on, you know, what year you take. Yeah, but if you time. try to take it back to the, the initial ape that gave birth to, what is it, five major branches, right? There's us, there's... Uh, gorillas, there's 
chimps. Right, but you can't compare you can't compare the human the ape to human transition to a one kind of cichlid to a different kind of. No, cichlid. but what you can. Uh, that's like a 10 million year period, right? If you look at one of the adjacent lakes, Lake Malawi, one species okay. of uh, mouth brooding cichlid, that's uh, the ones that keep their young in their mouths to keep them safe. Oh, it yeah. differentiated to 500 species or so in a million years. I mean, is it because fish are generally simpler than humans? I, I, I don't know, but it seems fast to me. You think a million years is fast? You just said that in 15,000 years you can get 15 exactly so, it's like these fish are on are on fast forward man oh so that is fast so like the million years makes sense to me but the fifteen thousand sounds really quick what do you think i'm throwing it to <laughs> amy i don't think she um, wants it what do you think the what do you think the first host guest host of the other side show um so what is fast a million or thousands well he's saying he's saying fifteen thousand years is really really fast and a million is really slow. You're saying a million is But a million fast. is fast in terms of, like, the, the primordial fish that became 500 cichlid varieties, right? Because if you look at the, the primate version, it took 10 times as long, right? From the, I don't want to say primordial because uh, the scientists are going to jump on me, but, like, the first so, ape-like thing that turned into... So what you can... The, so the word you can say is common ancestor. We and gorillas and all chips. primates have a common ancestor. Yeah. And then we've evolved down separate paths and radiated since yes. then. So I guess the common ancestor of the cichlids, between that him and 15,000 years, they irradiated how many different species? Well, it, yeah, the, the example 50? is Lake Malawi, right? And that's 500 species in a million, yeah, in a million years. years. So it seems like... Okay. Um, and, and then the cichlids are on overdrive. They're... Yeah, because um, it's essentially what happened in Lake Victoria happened in Lake Malawi and Lake Tanganyika and and all these lakes as well. Uh, like when the lakes were, were forming, uh, say one species makes it from one lake to another down, down a river and, and, and kickstarts the same development there. So maybe what would elucidate the time scale and how fast these things should happen would be kind of talking about how they happen at all. So what is it that causes speciation in the first place? And I guess we should specify, we didn't really, we didn't really talk about this at the beginning, but speciation will be when two animal populations somehow change to the point that they become two different animals. So you can imagine like the cichlids at one point change so much, like one will go left and one will go right to the point where they can't reproduce together anymore. They're just two separate species. Or right, that's a really good functional definition of a species is two animals that can't mate together and create offspring that can also reproduce. For example, like a lion and a tiger, they can mate together and make a liger. A liger. <laughs> Have yeah. you guys seen videos of, of that? They look awesome. They're uh, giant. Whenever I hear about ligers, I think about uh, Napoleon Dynamite. Have you ever seen a liger? Um, <laughs> well, I've never seen but, Napoleon course, Dynamite, so... You know, that's that's uh, a tribute to you, Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> but, of course, lions and tigers are different species, and even though they can functionally mate... They live in different geographical areas, and they've evolved differently. Yeah, so that's a good functional definition. Another definition would be that a species is a hypothesis about common ancestry. So everything within a species has a common ancestor. And when you're differentiating between species, that common ancestor is a lot farther away genetically. Is there, do you think there's a kind of time scale over how far back you go for it to still be a species? Because if the cichlids within 15,000 years have 15 species, then they have a common ancestor only 15,000 years ago. They say that the speciation of these cichlids is um, it's largely reproduction-driven. 
there's one species, the name of which completely escapes me right now, is the males build mating mounds, right? And if a female comes along and she's more impressed with one mound shape than another, she'll reproduce with that <laughs> guy. As they usually uh, try to put um, <laughs> It's a family show, all right? <laughs> but what, what'll happen is, like, maybe one female prefers mounds that are flat on one side, and another one prefers mounds that are nice and round. And as they, they mate with the guys who've built mounds that they prefer, their offspring will be apparently more likely to follow the same, the same taste until eventually down the line you've got two different species because they never actually intermingle anymore. So they never mate together anymore. Right. So they've effectively, even though they live in the same lake, they've found a different niche that they can both inhabit. Yeah. They, they've each f- found a different niche, but a, a reproductive <laughs> niche, right? Right. Exactly. So even though it's kind of hard to define a species in a very concrete way, we can define speciation. Speciation is the process by which a new species evolves. And all of the natural forms of speciation, so not getting a lion and a tiger in a cage and making them mate, but all of the natural forms of speciation have to do with geography. Okay. So Jesse just told us an example of sympatric speciation. So that's when you have one geographic area, Lake Victoria, and then within it, the animals somehow find ways to separate themselves. In this example, it's the sexual preferences of the fish. So they're not physically separated. It's not right. like one is a land fish and one is... I don't know why I said that, but it's not like one is a <laughs> land exactly fish and exactly like one is, one is not fish. a land fish, yeah. yeah. Um, this is kind of how humans do it, right? Like, oh, I prefer tall guys, I prefer short people. And okay, humans aren't speciating, but that is what drives our genetic <laughs> um, drift more so than... But I, I mean, is that not speciating because, like, we all sit... Because we're all still a species. Yeah, like, for instance, the cichlids have developed so that, you know, you've got, like, there's one that'll zoom up to a fish and rip off a bunch of scales and eat those, right? There, there's, there's, <laughs> there's a, there are two different ones that eat off of the rocks, but they hit rocks at different angles so that they can both eat right next to each other and not steal each other's food. You know, there are others that live yeah, out in the open. to play devil's advocate, Jesse, to play devil's advocate, there are some humans who eat with chopsticks and others who eat with their hands. But that... And others who eat with forks But that eye. doesn't result in different bone structures of the mouth. Oh, that's a good point. Although, given 10 million given years... Given 10 million could. years, it might. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I guess if we sort of sat down 10 million years from now and looked back, we would probably... You'd say, ah, oh, we should have had chopsticks. You know. What was that thing in the 50s? They thought that people, that because people are using computers so much, that their thumbs would grow oversized because they push buttons Really? So I didn't much. know that. Yeah, my, my high school economics teacher taught me really? about this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'd have oversized thumbs, and we're gonna lose our pinkies because we don't use them anymore. Uh, that I've heard. I've heard that you know we're gonna lose our pinkies, we're gonna lose our small toes. I, I tend to believe <laughs> nothing I hear. So. So of course humans are still adapting. I don't know if any of those will lead to two different subspecies of humans, <laughs> but it may. Well, okay. I don't know. We'll have to we'll have to come back to this in a million years. And <laughs> I, I would kind of think that we're sort of going in the other direction anyway, like because it's so simple to get between like Vancouver and China right, exactly. that eventually, I, I think there's going to be a right. homogenizing effect there, you know. Exactly. We don't have the geographic limitations that, for example, the cichlids yeah. do. Yeah, this uh, idea of everybody kind of averaging out and becoming the same is called genetic drift. I looked yeah. it up. Um, and there's an excellent example about if you have a jar with 20 red marbles and 20 blue marbles, and then you randomly take two to see what the offspring would look yeah. like, 
and then eventually you end up with a jar fully of red marbles or blue marbles just because if it's random then the one there's more of will be more dominant and so if we're not geographically being separated and we're more randomly pairing off between each other then we're more likely to have just an average human at the end at the end being like in a long long time well and let's face it uh, evolution is an ongoing story right right so should we go into the other types of speciation? Yeah, so, I'm excited for you to get to mine. I researched <laughs> one of them specifically. So. All right, should we do that one first? Okay. Okay, so sympatric speciation, the one we talked about in Lake Victoria, is kind of the most unique and a little bit difficult to understand. The most basic way is allopatric speciation. So you have one population. That population somehow becomes split into two by some geographic barrier. Maybe it's when a dam was built in a lake. Maybe it's when a continent rifted into two continents can take place on different timescales. From there, you have two isolated populations, and they will genetically drift and diverge, become two different species eventually. So this is my specialty today. So allopatric speciation. Suppose uh, I give you two families of rats, and one of the families, for some reason, is stuck on an island. You wouldn't expect those two families of rats to evolve in exactly the same way. You would expect them to adapt to whatever their surrounding is best. And one big consequence of being on an island is your size will change. If you don't have access to the rest of the world and the same predators you had earlier, what's to stop you from becoming bigger or smaller? And this is where what they call island giganticism comes from. As it's referenced in the show title, there are these things called giant rats. and they're terrifying, and they're over a meter large, or uh, about 45 inches on average. Where do they live? Uh, these were from the Canary Islands in Spain. They found mm. fossils of them okay. um, from like 10,000 to 100,000 years ago around <laughs> that time, but they're enormous and petrifying. Um, and there are also other, I mean, every example <laughs> that I found of an oversized eagle or an oversized bird, or they're all found on these islands. Um, for example, there's a host eagle, it's H-A-A-S-T. Okay. It's the largest eagle known to have ever existed, and it could fly up to 80 kilometers per hour or 50 miles per hour. And it was found on the South Island of New Zealand. Okay. Um, Whoa. So that, it, you know, it evolved by itself on an island. There was nothing stopping it, nothing, you know, no predators to it, so it became the biggest thing there. There's also what's called the elephant bird, <laughs> and it was uh, believed to be more than three meters tall. Three meters. Three meters is pretty tall. Feet. That, yeah, it was like... a 400 kilogram bird. Wow. <laughs> 880 pounds. 400 kilo. And then it, it's eggs. Oh my god. I'm guessing that one didn't eggs. have hollow bones. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know. But you know how, here's the thing. Like, so wait, first thing is its eggs had a circumference of more than one meter. Oh, Enormous snap. eggs. Are you kidding? And it only went extinct a few hundred years ago. It went extinct in the 17th century. Wow. So until like 400 years ago, they had these enormous elephant birds. Wow. <laughs> Finally, I think the, the standard case of oversized birds is the dodo. Yeah. You know, everybody knows about it's the go-to example of an animal that's gone extinct. Uh, it, it inhabited the island of Mauritius, and apparently it evolved just from ordinary-sized pigeons. So somehow these pigeons were landlocked on Mauritius, and oh. there were no predators, so these pigeons became the dodo. Holy cow. And then we have the exact converse example. If you have these really big animals such as, you know, elephants, they don't have the right nutrition because they don't have, the, you know, an island is small, they don't have enough food. So they found these dwarf elephants, these whole families of dwarf elephants that were about 2% the size of its original ancestors. So these elephants... Like what, the size of dogs, kind of? 
Well, a bit bigger. They're they're two hundred. I mean, they're still elephants, right? So they're two hundred kilogram elephants. But apparently, their ancestors were ten thousand kilograms. Oh, okay, so okay. It's, it's way smaller compared to that. All right. And I think the most interesting example of island dwarfism is that of what they've nicknamed the hobbits. About ten years ago, they found on the island of Flores in Indonesia, they found these humans that were a meter tall humans, like a whole you know family of them. Uh, is that humans or is that remains of humans? Okay, I guess I guess we should say it this way. It's it's uh, fossils and they're yeah. Homo flor- floresiensis, I guess named after Flores. So okay. they're not Homo sapiens, but um, they're you know only a few thousand years ago, three thousand years ago, they were found. Now I want to remind you, these guys are about a meter tall. There were giant rats that are over a meter in length. Right. <laughs> so they're literally rats the size of humans, even though they didn't sync up in time in history. Right. But you know you could conceive of getting one of these rats and like. <laughs> it's, it's like I'm terrified thinking about this, like being a meter Fighting tall. for his life against a rat. Yeah, e- exactly. Yeah. <laughs> this sounds like Jurassic Park 5. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. So we've replicated the tiny humans and the giant rats to see who would win <laughs> in the battle. Let's put them on an island together. Yeah. <laughs> I just see the argument. Okay, who would win? Tiny humans or giant rats? <laughs> Have you heard the one would rather fight uh, a horse-sized duck or a hundred duck-sized horses? <laughs> no. You know, would you rather fight a human-sized rat? <laughs> or a rat-sized <laughs> rat human. And finally, the most interesting thing, so I talked about how big animals get tiny and small animals get big. Sounds like they kind of trend towards this average size. So this paper I found in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the U.S., and it's a formula. There's a function. We'll put it on, on the show notes. It's the average size of animals as a function of the area landmass of the island they're on. So you can fit this to a plot. This isn't even... Oh, really? Yeah, this is um, quantitative data. So I think that's really cool, the fact that, you know, it's one thing to notice, oh, these are enormous eagles and enormous rats, but there's another to actually do a systematic study and not just work on confirmation bias. Yeah, but wouldn't you, there be like a rider clause that, yeah, the size of the land or whatever, but also the niche that you fill in? Because otherwise all ocean fish would be the size of, you know, blue whales oh that's a good point right Right. yeah oceans i didn't consider that i i don't know if this extends to water but it it probably does i i don't know no i don't know there's probably a maximum size an animal could be too because how many enormous whales could you possibly have in the ocean someone will probably write in to tell us there's this thing about that'd be really interesting (laughs) there's this thing about the bigger you are the fewer of you there are on the earth and so that's why ants dominate the earth by weight right (laughs) Because they're so tiny, it's just easy to make millions of them. It doesn't take a lot of resources. Makes makes sense. And also, I mean, maybe I'm just pulling stuff out of the air here, but the smaller you are, the more things there are that can eat you. So the more young you should probably be putting out to make sure that the species continues, right? And the faster you should mature. And the faster you should, yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking about sea turtles and the like, you know, how they lay a bazillion young. And then as the young Mm -hmm. break open and start you know, sort of crawling towards the ocean, everything drops in for a meal. So that, you know, out of a bazillion, you might get a few that, that reach the ocean. And But the, the species continues, you know? Yeah, somehow they've survived yeah. all of the, uh, the challenges. Yeah. So that's basically all I found about allopatric speciation. Um, there are hundreds of examples. I just picked out a handful. I think the hobbits is really the icing on the cake here, right? Like humans have somehow evolved on their own island, so... You know, nobody's safe. Yeah, no. But, you know, it, it's even, it doesn't have to result in different sizing, right? I'm just thinking about, like, the Canada goose and the the, the nene, the Hawaiian goose. 
Okay. And the what, Jesse? The Hawaiian goose. It's like a goose on Hawaii. The nene? That yeah, I think it's called the nene, and it comes directly from the Canada goose from about five hundred thousand years ago. I guess a Canada geese. Maybe I don't know. They got lost and landed there or something. But five hundred thousand years on, they're two completely different species. They sort of look the same, but it, like the nene kind of looks like a, a washed out Canada goose. <laughs> they probably taste the same. Yeah, they probably taste the same. Um, but it's just it's interesting because of what Amy was saying about you know you have one species suddenly they're no longer in the same area code and they just develop into two different. I don't know if they could interbreed at this point. I'm thinking after you know a half million years, maybe not, but I, I don't know how. Well, if we put them in captivity, maybe we can find out, and I don't know if people have tried that. But I think the point is that because they are in different geographic places, they just don't ever hang out, and they would never have the chance to breed naturally. So we do say they're different species. Right. I think we should also talk about why is it that these two species can't breed, right? There is like a fundamental scientific reason. It's not that they don't find each other attractive. They probably do also not find each other attractive. But <laughs> since what makes you who you are is your genetic code and your genetic code is slowly changing, if these two species, their genetic code changes in different ways, at some point the code is not compatible anymore. It's like putting a Blu-ray inside of a CD player. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so can I give a kind of fun historical note that I found? Yeah. Sure. So the guy who kind of became famous for naming all of these species, putting them in different classifications, is Carl Linnaeus. He was a Swedish botanist, physician, and zoologist, and he laid the foundations for the modern scheme of binomial nomenclature. So those are all the Latin names that are totally oh, unpronounceable. Okay. I hate that guy. Um, <laughs> is he Latin? Where's he from? He's Swedish. Swedish. He's yeah. Swedish? Why did he pick the Latin? Anyhow, I'm not going to complain. Is that Swedish, maybe? <laughs> I don't know. That might be even harder to pronounce. Yeah. Well, what year are we talking about? So he published the first edition of Systema Naturae in 1735. Yeah, that would probably be why it's Latin. So for Linnaeus and his contemporaries, they weren't thinking about evolution. This was pre-Charles Darwin by about 100 years. So what they were doing was cataloging all of these species that God put on the earth, looking at differences and describing them. So it wasn't until about 100 years later when Darwin wrote on the origin of species yeah. that we started thinking about how these differences arose in a way other than God put them there. Right. And the fun fact that I found is that the type species for an organism is called a lectotype. So if you were to describe a species with one example of an individual, that's the lectotype. And Carl Linnaeus is the lectotype for our species, Homo sapiens. Oh, interesting. So when we describe ourselves, it's in <laughs> it's in it's in reference to him. So That's maybe the I'm greatest thing. He is the alpha male. He is the alpha male. <laughs> <clears throat> that reminds me, you know when they when they started sequencing the genetic code, the first person whose gene code they sequenced was uh, you know Watson and Crick, the people who discovered the double helix structure of the yeah. DNA? So it's, I think Watson. It's one of them too. I think it's Watson. <laughs> and they he is the first, you know, his it's public domain his whole his genome everything except apparently a small section about the alzheimer's he didn't release that but oh. he released everything else he kept that private oh wow he thought that was too personal interesting so take Linnaeus, the whole genome but <laughs> they should they should sequence linnaeus he should be the yeah i wonder so i wonder that. i didn't find this out but i wonder if like 
there's a Linnaeus like taxidermy Linnaeus somewhere <laughs> oh, that see. kind of like in no the... like a taxidermy like a rowdy like from Scrubs like in Linnaeus like <laughs> I don't a know stuffed what that is. Linnaeus <laughs> well because you know how like in the meter episode we have like the kilogram block oh, that yeah. we measure other kilograms yeah. by like is there a Linnaeus that we can other <laughs> a Linnaeus block other by? A made a out of platinum. <laughs> Yeah, it's probably not oh. in a vacuum either. It's probably just sitting in the same room. <laughs> oh, I feel sad now for Linnaeus. Uh, I don't feel sad. He's, he's, he's awesome. a legend now, yeah. That's true. And just for completeness, the two other types of speciation that we don't have examples of, there's um, parapatric speciation, which I think is a subcategory of allopatric. And that's where a species enters a new geographic niche, and then somehow those like the gateway between those two niches closes. So they become isolated after the fact. So hold on, how is that different from allopatric? Allopatric is also there separated geographically. Okay, so in allopatric, there's a barrier, a literal barrier between the geography they used to inhabit. So maybe there's a mountain forming event. Right, like a dam or its own island, right. Right. And and in parapatric? And in parapatric, the population finds a way to enter a new place, but then that gateway that they used to go into the new place closes off. How's that different from the other one? <laughs> <laughs> it, it seems like the, the same thing if you go back far enough. Do you know what I'm saying? No, okay. So they're different because in Allopatric, they don't move. There's a barrier oh, that's built between them. Yeah. Oh, and in okay. Parapatric, they move, then a barrier okay. occurs. Okay. I see. Okay. Oh, I understand. <laughs> that's and the last one is Parapatric. And that's when... Wait, did you say Parapatric? Perry, and then this one's para. Okay, Perry and para. para. Um, okay. And it looks like this one, they enter a new niche, and then the barrier doesn't really form, but they're still sort of far enough away that they sort of diverge, and then eventually they become two species. So I guess it's kind of shades of gray back and forth between allopatric to sympatric. Right, which is why all the cases we have, the extreme cases will be Right, the so extreme. yeah, the kind of crazy extreme cases are that most extreme example, allopatric speciation. Interesting. So I have one more fun fact. Um, so we've been talking about this episode about speciation, and that is differences in kind of the last classification, like kingdom, phylum, yada, 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 all the way yeah. down to species. So why aren't we talking about phylum Yeah, why don't we have big differences? Like, why don't we have new phyla appearing every once in a while now, today? I don't know. Wouldn't Do you guys it take, have any ideas? Wouldn't it take... So remind me, how big is phylum? Is phylum like vertebrate, invertebrate? Like, is that how high up we're talking? Um, so we're within a kingdom, like animals. Animal kingdom, sure. Yeah, and then you have like different, oh, I don't remember all the different phylums. So phylum is right under animal kingdom? Right, so this is big differences within animals. Can you give me an example of two animals that are not of the same phylum? Yeah, so maybe like a mollusk is its own phyla, m- mollusca. It looks like there's a bunch of types of worm phyla. Yeah, there are. A lot like of I'm looking at the worms. list here. Worms dominate everything. <laughs> Arrow worms, goblet worms, jaw worms, acorn worms. This is ridiculous. Get your own phylum worm. Y'all don't have to share. <laughs> so why don't we have any like really big drastic changes to what animals or plants look like now? Why don't we have like phylum Asian? Well, wouldn't that be too big uh, a niche to fill? You know what I'm saying? Like, what creature is going to change from a clam to a moose? <laughs> so we do have geological example of phylum and that's the really? Cambrian explosion. 
So oh, that's like, where oh. a lot of the phyla we see now first appeared. So they're all within the animal kingdom, but it was a huge diversification in terms of phyla. And we, How long ago did this take place? This so explosion? it's roughly like 543 million years ago. Roughly five. I'm gonna get my million. geology degree taken away from me if that's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And we don't see this kind of radiation anymore. And one hypothesis that I heard a talk about comes from Professor Kevin Peterson, and he says it's because of microRNAs, which are small pieces of RNA that are like around genes. Yeah. That sort of hold our genes together more specifically is kind of how I understand it. And so as we accumulate more and more microRNA. They kind of limit the amount of diversification in those big-scale ways we can have. Because okay. today our genes still change on a day-to-day, -day, but it's just going to make me taller or have darker hair. It's not going to remove my spine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not going to turn you into a mollusk or to a scales. completely right. unheard of phyla. Yeah. All right, cool. Uh, let's head on to our mailbag segment of the show. Today's message comes from Brooke in Guelph, Ontario, uh, and he says, I loved your comment that it's almost like the physics knows you're watching. That's so telling of the need for us to inspect and better understand the relationship between the scientists and the world, and the rest of us too. So thanks, Brooke, and I think you're right. I think it's a good comment. Uh, I think Orad would agree. I think scientists love talking about science as a person. Like, we love saying science wants this to be true or something on the order of it knows that you're doing this or it anticipates like we yeah. talk about it like we personify science a lot so brooke uh, i know brooke is in philosophy and he's very sensitive to comments like that yeah and that's it for our mailbag segment this week unfortunately we don't have time to read any more of the messages we have because we went a bit over in our time today so uh that's it for us i want to thank amy for joining us today thank you amy yeah of course thanks for having me and of course you know you're welcome every time uh seeing as you edit <laughs> the podcast anyway you can edit yourself in if you like um, special appearance by Amy <laughs> and uh, you guys can find Amy on Twitter at Amy underscore Gwiz you can find that information on the website you can also follow us on Twitter at Yas Podcast and like us on Facebook at facebook.com yet another science show and all this information and more is at yet another science show dot com um, and yeah I think next week we're going to talk about uh, material toughness so we're going to have a bit of material toughness. science on the show. We're going to have some real testosterone as we try and use a sledgehammer to break <laughs> concrete stuff. And wait to hear we have, which guest we have next time also. Uh, we're going to tease that on the blog and on Twitter and Facebook. So keep your eyes peeled. Thanks for listening. From Montreal, Quebec, I'm Jesse. And from Cambridge, Massachusetts, I'm Oren. See you next time. <laughs>